morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself. And if you don't get my weekly email, if you go to our website, wellchurch.org, you can scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up for my weekly email there. I send out an email every Friday about what's happening in the well. So thanks for being with us today. And today is the first week of a brand new series on the Ten Commandments. Now, let's be honest. There are some of us who hear the Ten Commandments and we just think snooze fest. Our eyes roll into the back of our heads. We view the Ten Commandments, if we're honest, as boring, as archaic, as trite. Why would we talk about this in the 21st century? We're aware of how the Ten Commandments are used as a political football in the United States. There are politicians who try to pander to religious voters by saying they're going to put the Ten Commandments on public property. And we just have this kind of this distaste. Some of us, if we're honest, when we hear the Ten Commandments. Now, you may think that you know what the Ten Commandments mean, uh, but perhaps not uh, because of the way they have been used in our society. Now, they're also part of pop culture. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille actually made two movies on the Ten Commandments. Uh, one was a silent film in 1923, and then, of course, the Charlton Heston version in 1956. Mel Brooks had a slightly different take uh, in the 1980s in History of the World Part One. He played the part of Moses, and he actually received three tablets with 15 commandments from God, but he tripped and fell and broke one of them. So he's like, oh, look, the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are a part of pop culture. We may have an idea of what they mean. Most of us probably know them better than we think we do. Um, but maybe we don't capture all of the meaning of the Ten Commandments, especially in their historical context and what they can mean for us today. So the Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant lists of the Ten Commandments are slightly different. The numbering is different based on combining a couple or adding the intro as the first commandment. They're all taken from Exodus chapter 20. They all say the same thing, but the ordering is just a little bit different. So here is our order for this series. This is the Protestant version. Commandment number one that we're talking about today, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which may mean something different than you think. Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your parents. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So in their historical context, the Ten Commandments were a challenging and inspiring leap forward in their time. And even those of us who may think that the Ten Commandments are boring or archaic or trite, or we just don't want to hear about them because of the way they're used in politics in America. Unfortunately, the Ten Commandments are still an inspiring and challenge, uh, challenging document for us here in the 21st century. Let's think about the difficulty our culture has had with putting political figures or ideology above the God they say they worship over the past few years. Or it's easy to talk about it when maybe it's, we think it's other people. What about us? You know, think about the struggles that we can have with honesty from time to time. Or coveting 
wanting things that aren't ours and greed. And so the Ten Commandments are a challenge for us too, more than we would care to admit. Now, really what we're going to see in this series is the Ten Commandments are about how we order society. They're about ordering society, ordering the house of our society. Like we have rules in this house. Ordering our house, our society, in a way that benefits everybody. They were a giant leap forward in their time, and they still are for us today. So today we're starting with the first commandment. It's from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And let's read together now. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, there are people who read the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And they read it through the lens of pastors they've experienced, political leaders they've experienced, maybe religious people they know, who came off to them as authoritarian or toxic, maybe narcissistic, maybe even abusive. That has been the experience of religion that lots of people have had. One of authoritarianism and and, and toxicity and even abuse. And so there are people who read the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And they're like, wait a second, is God like an, an authoritarian, narcissistic leader, pastor, politician? And, and God is just demanding blind loyalty, like I'm a jealous God and you have to worship me. And, and God just has ego needs. And, and God demands blind loyalty from God's followers. Is that, is that the kind of God we're talking about when we read, you shall have no other gods before me? And, and, and they're inclined to think that because that's the experience of religion they've had. That's the experience of pastors they've had. That's the experience of politicians who use religion and, and do a lot of God talk but who are authoritarian and narcissistic and maybe even abusive. So here's a discussion question for this week. If you're willing to type in the comments, wherever you're watching this, I want to ask you a question. What is one example of Christians following an authoritarian pastor or a politician that you have seen? Now we ask that you be civil in the comments, but that you also express yourself honestly. What is one example If you'd be willing to type this in the comments, you've seen of Christians following an authoritarian pastor or politician. If you would like to share your experience, what's one example you've seen? Now, like you, for the past several years, I've seen family members and friends say and do some surprising things. Surprising in some ways. Surprising and not surprising. I've seen... Uh, family members and friends follow a political leader blindly. I've heard them repeat ridiculous things that made no sense, that they had to just deny the evidence they were seeing with their own eyes to believe, but they repeated these things that they've heard their leader say. I've seen people believe ridiculous lies, or at least say they believe them, because they blindly followed who I consider to be an authoritarian and narcissistic Leader. Now, like I said, I've been surprised and not surprised because in my experience of religion, I've known some great pastors and great religious people. And at the same time, I've known some that are authoritarians themselves and probably narcissistic and even abusive. And to me, it, it, it kind of makes sense 
that there were a lot of Christians in America who were primed for authoritarian, narcissistic political leaders because that's what their religious experience prepared them for. Now, Red Letter Christians is a, is a, a Christian organization, a more f- open-minded, forward-thinking Christian organization led by Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. And on February 25th of this year, one of the contributors to their website, Stephen Matson, wrote an article called The Idolatry of Christian Nationalism. Idolatry is putting something else above God. We'll talk more about that next week. But it's putting something else, having another God before me. That's idolatry. And Stephen Matson write, writes, Evil attacks Christians by tricking them into believing they're being biblical, when in reality they aren't being Christ-like at all. To be Christ-like is to love your neighbor as yourself. To be biblical is to quote verses that align with your personal agendas and contextualize scripture according to your own opinions. Too many people are being biblical without being Christ-like. This is how Christian nationalism captures so many people, convincing them of their righteousness while simultaneously using them to commit evil. He goes on, we must emulate Jesus and love our neighbors. And although Christian nationalism dresses itself up as faith and freedom and patriotism and spirituality and even Christianity, it's hurtful and oppressive and hateful and violent towards others. It doesn't exhibit love, peace, patience, or kindness. If you remember the last series on the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't look or act anything like Jesus. May we seek Jesus and serve the kingdom of God, pledging our allegiance to Christ above any other earthly ruler. May God help us sacrificially love others to the best of our ability. So perhaps lots of Christians have been primed, prepared, um, groomed for authoritarian, toxic political leaders because that's their experience of religion. And so when people read the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, maybe they think, you know, God is like that. Maybe God is like this authoritarian, jealous, narcissistic, abusive pastor or politician. Or maybe there's another way of reading that. As Americans, we actually have an advantage when we read the first commandment because we have a founding document that does the same thing that the first commandment does. In our declaration of independence, excuse me, I have allergies and so I'll cough uncontrollably and I try to catch it and my breathing kind of sounds weird. So pardon me, I'm trying not to cough, cough. But our declaration of independence starts like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident and it says all men, but we mean all people, that all people are created equal that they are endowed by their Congress with certain inalienable rights. Is that what it says? They are endowed by the President of the United States with certain inalienable rights. They are endowed by the Supreme Court with certain inalienable rights. Is that what it says? No, it says they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does the Declaration of Independence do? What is it doing? when it grounds human rights in a creator, not the government, not a particular person, not a social fad, not somebody's opinion, but when it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all these rights, they're, they're given to us by our creator, by God. What does that accomplish? That's obvious. What it does is it roots human rights in the highest authority, in an authority higher than even the United States Government. And in doing so, it says there is no law that can take your rights away. 
There is no politician who has the the right to take your rights away. Why? Because your rights are God-given by the highest authority. And so the Declaration of Independence roots human rights in the highest authority imaginable in God. And that's exactly what the first commandment does. When the first commandment says, you shall have no, no other gods before me, what that does is it roots the rest of the law. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're laws, they're jurisprudence, they're, they're a declaration of human rights. It roots those laws in the highest authority in God. And in doing so, says there is no government, there is no leader, there is no, there is no despot, there is no demagogue, there is no court that can take these rights away from you because they're given by God. That's what the first commandment does. You shall have no other gods before me means you don't let any other authority in this world take these rights away from you. These are given by me and they're based in the character of a good God who frees people from slavery, a God who liberates, a God who looks at the plight of people who are suffering, who are at the bottom and says, let my people go. All of the rest of these commandments and laws are rooted in that God who grants these rights to all people and they can never be taken away. That's how the first commandment functions, to root human rights in the ultimate authority. And, and the Ten Commandments did not appear out of thin air. The, the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum, neither were the Ten Commandments. There are similarities and differences in ancient law codes, uh, between ancient law codes and the Ten Commandments, like the Code of Hammurabi, which is from Mesopotamia. Hammurabi ruled from around 1894 B.C. to 15. 95 BC, somewhere in that time frame. And the Code of Hammurabi is carved on an eight feet tall black stone called a stela. And at the top of the carving uh, is Hammurabi receiving the law from the Babylonian god Shamash. And there are 282 laws carved into the stone and they're mixed with praise for Hammurabi and his rule. And there are similarities. There are laws about bearing false witness against your neighbor. There are laws involving lex talionis, an eye for an eye. It includes harsh punishments for breaking some laws, like the removal of body parts that we won't describe in detail here. But, and, and you could make an argument that the Code of Hammurabi favors the rich. For example, if a man steals another man's ox, he has to pay 30 times the value of the ox. There are three standards of justice in the Code of Hammurabi for the three classes of Babylonian society, property class, freedmen and slaves. Uh, another example, a doctor's fee for curing a severe wound would be 10 silver shekels for a, a, a property owner, five shekels for a freedman and two shekels for a slave. Now that's, that's good. Healthcare costs less for people who can't afford as much. So that's good. But at the same time, penalties for malpractice on the part of that doctor followed the same uh, Logic, a doctor who killed a rich patient would have his hand cut off, while uh, only financial restitution was required if the victim was a slave. So the value of your life was based on how much money you had. So the Ten Commandments came to exist among a people who had been freed from slavery. That was their story. That's the intro to the Ten Commandments. I brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, the Decalogue, meaning the Ten Commandments, 
stands as a critical principle of protest against every kind of exploitive social relation and as a social vision of possibility that every social relation can be transformed and made into a liberating relation. The Ten Commandments are an inspiring challenge, Brueggemann says, and they present the possibility that human beings could be liberated in a society, that the people at the bottom could be liberated from exploitation and oppression and could have a fair shot, that they, they present the possibility, the invitation to us that this kind of society is possible, a, a society of liberation. And so in the Ten Commandments, human rights are rooted in the character of a compassionate God who frees people. They're a declaration of human rights rooted in the authority of God. And they're about how we order society. So it's easy to talk about how other people put something else above God. If you're not a Christian nationalist, it's easy to see how Christian nationalism is idolatry and how there are lots of Christians who have put their ideology, their, their nationalism above God. But it's, it's harder to talk about ways that, that maybe we are putting some things above God. God. Now, uh, it's obvious to the rest of the world what the God of America is. When, when people from other countries look at us, when they travel here, when they immigrate here, it's obvious to much of the world what God Americans tend to put first, and that God is money. <laughs> America America is a land of opportunity. That's how we want to view ourselves. We, we talk about the American dream. And it's true, we do have a value of rags to riches that you can, you can uh, out-earn the class of your birth, that you can rise above the, the state that you were born into. And you can, you can gain wealth and you can gain freedom and, and independence in doing so. And I believe that's a good value. I would rather have that value than not have that value. And at the same time, there's a downside to that. The downside to that is when our focus is upward mobility, our focus turns to money and constantly thinking about how we can get ahead. How can we make more? How can we invest? How can we engage in this, this you know, uh, sometimes schemes to make more money? How can I get promoted? How can I, how can I always just make more money? and get closer to achieving the American dream. And that comes with a price. I have several friends who have bought homes or tried to buy homes in the Phoenix area lately. And uh, all of them had to put in at least 20 offers, sometimes sight unseen, sometimes without an inspection. And lots of them had to offer an amount of money that was $50,000 above the listing price of the house. And then lots of times they still got beaten out by an investment company who was coming in and offering cash and they plan to just turn that house into a rental. So what we're seeing in the, in the, the Phoenix housing market, and this is happening other places in, in the country as well, is that there are people with money who are moving from other places or investment companies who come in and they can just bid up the price of a house, some of them with the intention of just turning that house into a rental. And so it prices people out of the market, regular middle-class people who are trying to buy a home and achieve you know, the quote-unquote American dream. 
and it, it causes the price to be unreachable for them, so they're forced to rent. That doesn't really sound like a dream to me. And so the downside of upward mobility is it feels like we always have to claw and clamor our way toward achieving some kind of, of you know, uh, financial status where we can actually afford what we think of as the American dream. And there are other people who are coming in and trying to get theirs and it makes it harder for us. Sometimes it feels like America is the Las Vegas of the world. That you can, you can make it big or you can, you can go bust if you, if you land on the wrong square. And so our focus in an environment like this tends to, it almost forces us to, to put our focus on money. And we can easily fall into materialism and making money and just upward mobility our God. Another God in a divided country like this is ideology and tribalism. Maybe it's easy for you to see how so many Christians have fallen into Christian nationalism. Maybe it's not as easy to see how we can put our own ideology or our own tribe above God. We live in a country bombarded with propaganda in which the fairness doctrine was struck down in 1987. And since then, we have cable, quote unquote, news shows that just lie to the American people. And we have what the former Senator Al Franken calls two information universes in America, where Americans are split into two different realities, two sets of facts, two different ways of viewing the world because of intentional propaganda put out to divide Americans. And then we get into one of those camps and the pressure for us, because humans are tribal creatures, the pressure for us is to fit in and just to go along with whatever ideology that we encounter in our tribe and not to, not to rock the boat and just believe what our tribe believes. And, and when we do so, without questioning anything, well, we've put our ideology above God. It's a temptation that's real, especially in the divided and dangerous time we live in. But does your cultural tribe, your tribal identification, your ideology take the place of God in your life? Or are you willing to question your ideology and the beliefs of your tribe. Now that naturally leads into another temptation to put something else above God. And for some of us, it's people pleasing or just being liked. We want to, we want to be liked and to fit in and to just to please other people so much that it's tempting for us to put that above God in our lives. We're hesitant to speak up for what is right because we don't want to ruffle feathers. And by ruffling feathers, we mean we don't want people to criticize us. We want to fit into our social group. Even people that say horrible things or are supporting nationalism. And so we just stay silent. And sometimes we want to, we want to put people pleasing above God to the extent that we will convince ourselves that staying silent is a virtue. We'll convince ourselves that just not offending people is a good thing and being nice. I just don't want to offend. I just want to be nice. I just don't want to offend people. We'll convince ourselves that that's a good thing. When in reality, silence is complicity. Silence is appeasement. Silence is letting aggressive people who have, a, who have a, an evil agenda just do what they want without being challenged. That's what silence really is. But sometimes we, we want to please people so much and fit into our tribe so much or just not ruffle feathers in our family or with our friends so much that we will put people pleasing above 
God. I was driving in the car with my sons the other day and they were asking me questions about the CDC and, and masks, the CDC guidance that came out last week. And they were asking about what's the right thing to do and well, why would they say this if, they, if this could actually happen? And we started talking about leadership. And I said to my boys that what's tough about leadership is leaders lead people not where they want to go, but where they need to go. And I said, when you do that, you will always face criticism. It's not if, you will always face criticism if you really choose to be a leader and you lead people where they need to go and you speak up for what's right. You will always face criticism. But I explained to my boys, the reason it's worth it, the reason that it's worth it to face criticism is you know you did the right thing. You know you led people to where they needed to go. You believed in the cause and you sacrificed and you led people there and you stood up for what is right. That, is, that makes it worth facing the criticism. But that's a temptation for many of us to put people pleasing above God and doing what is right. And then this is my last point. For those of us who uh, are in the well and churches like this, uh, sometimes our God, and this is, this is a difficult thing to admit, it's a difficult realization, but sometimes our God is being stuck in a state of confusion or perplexity about what we believe about God and religion and deconstructing and reconstructing. And we get stuck in this state of confusion. And that becomes the number one motivator or, or driving force in our lives, in our spiritual lives, above God. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't even like the way you said that just now. Like that's guilt producing. And, and that takes you back to a, a religious experience that you had in the past. But here's what I mean. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar we quoted earlier, said that religious conservatives tend to forget the last six commandments that are about our relationship with people and social justice. And religious progressives tend to forget the first four commandments that are about God. Religious progressives, we like to focus on the, the ethical social justice part of the Ten Commandments, but it's difficult for us to focus as much on the commandments about God because we have so many questions about God and about metaphysical things. And for those of us who are deconstructing or reconstructing or trying to reconstruct something, we can get stuck. We can get stuck in a, in a place where we lose any kind of spiritual passion or commitment because we know we don't want to go back to what we experienced before, which is a good thing. But we don't know where we could possibly go from here. We don't have any direction or guidance about how we could get out of this state of confusion or perplexity or cognitive dissonance where we just don't know what to believe. And so we just get stuck in this confusion. And you could make the argument that that confusion is put in the place of God in our spiritual lives. Now, Brian McLaren just released a book called Faith After Doubt. And if you're feeling stuck in confusion in your spiritual journey, if you're deconstructing or reconstructing and you're confused and you're just not sure where to go from here, this book might be exactly what you've been looking for. And in the book, Brian describes 
four stages of faith, and he draws on a multitude of models from religion and psychology to uh, describe these four stages of faith. And let's see if this would help you make sense of maybe where you are and, and about how you could move forward from here. And I'm speaking to myself too. So stage one is simplicity. Stage two is complexity. Stage three is perplexity. And stage four is harmony. Now, stage one folks look to authority figures to tell them what to believe and what to do. These are folks who are uh, susceptible to authoritarianism. They value being part of the good, right, and true group. We're in, everybody else is right. Life is a war because there is a clear battle line between right and wrong. And of course, I'm always in the right group. And doubt is to be eradicated. Doubt is, ooh, ooh, get it away. Doubt is something to be eliminated from your life. And faith is believing the right things, the, the right list of things. That's what faith is. And it's simple, right? That's stage one, simplicity. Stage two is complexity. Stage two is life is about being successful and winning in life. And I can achieve my dreams with the right coaching. And if I take the right steps and doubt is a problem to be solved, solved and faith is a means to an end like winning at life. Think of how many Christian books have been written about like winning at life. If you just follow these seven simple steps from the Bible, right? That's, that's complexity. It's not, it's not really authoritarian and it's just a different motivation. People in stage two just want to be successful in life. And faith is kind of a means to getting there. And you know, you know, lots of churches that kind of cater to stage two. Stage three is perplexity. In stage three, you start to ask questions, real questions. And stage one and stage two begin to fall apart. You realize that the first two stages do not adequately explain life and deal with all the questions that you have. And when you begin that, you are thrown into perplexity. You see through authoritarianism, you, you see through hypocrisy, you value intellectual honesty, and doubt is a virtue. We say at the well, questions and doubts welcome. You're welcome to express your faith and, and your doubts. Doubt is a virtue. Doubt's a good thing because it, it leads you to question and, and deconstruct what doesn't work and hopefully reconstruct something that does. And faith can actually be an obstacle to critical thinking. And so when you hear the first four commandments or like commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me, like, Wait, that, could, that could be an obstacle to critical thinking, to me deconstructing and reconstructing, because it reminds us of going backwards and just accepting, you know, blind faith and following some authoritarian pastor. And so faith can actually be viewed as an obstacle. And many of us here at the well, we're in perplexity. And the danger for us is getting stuck there getting stuck in this place of perplexity and confusion and cognitive dissonance and never being able to move beyond that. And I would submit in the most gentle way possible that that would be an example of, of putting something else above God. Putting perplexity and confusion and getting stuck there can be something that actually becomes an idol, putting that above God. Now, Brian writes that there is a fourth stage called harmony. 
And harmony is about becoming comfortable with the connection of everything in life, even the things we don't like, and being comfortable with mystery. And it's a way of coming to see that everything belongs. The fundies have their place and they're not going away. And so I have to figure out how to do life and love them even though I vehemently disagree. And harmony is holistic. It sees us all as interconnected. And it's compassionate. And all questions are not answered. Doubt is a necessary part of life. And and faith is, check this out, as Brian writes, faith is humble, reverent openness to mystery that expresses itself as non-discriminatory love. Now that's a challenge. Because if you're in perplexity, you're asking questions and you know what you don't want to be. And I'm right there too. And we know the right thing is to speak out against the dishonesty and the hypocrisy and the the authoritarianism that we see. That is the right thing. In harmony, that's the right thing too. But harmony is about more than just tearing things down and maybe trying to build something up. Harmony is getting to a place where I can love everybody and I can even speak out and critique in love. I can speak out against authoritarianism and bigotry and racism and fascism as I should. And I also see that we're all human. And so there's this this grand mystery to life where I see us all as interconnected and I am a part of that. And I'm willing to speak out for what is right and even sacrifice for what is right. And, And be hurt by people who are in stage one. But I refuse to hate them. I refuse to to demonize the way that they do. I think that's what Jesus did. Of course, Jesus is in stage four harmony. Of course, that would be the only correct Sunday school answer. But isn't that what we see in Jesus's life? Jesus turned the tables over. Jesus Jesus spoke out against injustice. And he also said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they crucified him. That, that's, that's a different stage than just being perplexed and confused about what I believe and getting stuck there. Somebody who lives in, in stage four harmony has been able to work through, and it's not something we can force or fake. You don't want to do that. But, but, but choose not to get stuck in perplexity and confusion and move to something beyond that that Brian calls stage four harmony, where we really can put God first and we can put good first. And we can be passionately committed to God and goodness. And we can be dedicated to it. We can have a fire in our souls for it. And be willing to sacrifice for what is right. And at the same time, we love everybody. I mean, wow, what an amazing state to live in. Stage four, harmony. So as we start this series on the Ten Commandments, The Ten Commandments are not a set of archaic, trite rules that end up being a political football about whether they're posted in the the courthouse lawn. But the Ten Commandments were an inspiring challenge, as Brueggemann says, of what is possible in, in society. 
that it's possible to order ourselves in a way that, that benefits everybody. And the Ten Commandments hold out this, this inspiring possibility of what could be. Even for those of us who have a lot of questions, Brueggemann says, the social justice parts are rooted in the character of God. I'm a God who led you out of slavery in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Are we committed to that God? Is there something else that we're putting above God in our lives? My ideology, my tribal affiliation, people-pleasing, money, comfort, even a state of confusion. Am I putting anything above God? And if I allow myself to be challenged, invited uh, to seeing what's possible in my life, there's more for me. A way that I can put God and goodness first. And there's a new stage of growth and development for me. And, And this God who frees people can work through me to accomplish the rest of the commandments that we're going to talk about in this series. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for what seemed to many of us to be this archaic list of of rules that are used politically in the United States. And we're just not sure that we would even want to hear a series on the Ten Commandments. But we see, God, that thinking people can take the Bible seriously when we interpret it in the light of its historical context. And in the light of their context, the Ten Commandments were a challenging and inspiring leap forward past the code of Hammurabi, past the the basic instincts of humans to just dominate other people and exploit other people. The Ten Commandments are a statement of human rights that are rooted in the highest authority, a God who frees people. And they cause us to ask ourselves, especially the first commandment, am I putting anything above that good God who liberates people in my life? My ideology, my my views, my tribal identification, my, my money, my personal comfort, the desire to displease people and be comfortable in life? Am I getting stuck in my spiritual life so that I, I just can't grow past the deconstructive phase? It's not something we can force or fake our way through, but am I committed to working through my questions and getting to a, a new stage that Brian McLaren calls harmony? Or my questions aren't fully answered, but there's a grand mystery to life that I want to embrace and run towards. And I want to be committed to goodness. And yes, even to this mysterious idea of God that is challenging for me. God, thank you that there's hope that the Ten Commandments present to us a possibility, a possibility of more that we can grow as, as, as an individual and that we can grow as a society. And we're excited about this series and we're open. And we say, speak to us, God. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.